Chapter six of the Psychology of Alcoholism by George Barton Keaton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Emotions. In the study of the emotional nature of the alcoholic, we find a degeneration corresponding in kind as well as degree to that of the intellect and will. The way has been prepared in a small measure for our discussion by references to the emotions in the preceding chapters when discussing the relation of the emotions to the other faculties of mind. The emotions, insofar as they relate to the moral nature of man in general, and the alcoholic in particular, will be reserved for treatment in the chapter on morals. This slightly restricts our discussion, yet this chapter is necessary to our subject, on account of the obvious emotional changes which are brought about by alcoholic indulgence. Considerable discussion has taken place between psychologists on the evolutionary aspects of the emotions. For truly the emotions, notwithstanding their indefinite and changing character, do give scope for study in this direction. It seems that pathological cases similar to the alcoholic should be fruitful fields to explore. For the alcoholic in his lowest and most degraded stage becomes little more than a brute as far as his emotions are concerned. The order of evolution, both regarding the race and the individual, can be traced in a general way by noticing the order of decline, and then changing it to read inversely. Of all the aspects of degeneration through the excessive indulgence of alcohol, there is no one more pitiable, neither is there one that causes more distress, than this change in the emotions. The principle which we have found to apply so well in our discussion, as far as we have proceeded, is also applicable to the emotions. In fact, this is the principle of degeneration in general. It is that the latest evolved most complex and least stable states are those which are the first to be attacked, and the first to be destroyed by any detrimental agent, while the early simple states remain until the last. In addition to this principle we add another. We found in the previous chapters that general bodily health was necessary to the best normal mental activity. But with the emotions, the least change in the organs of the body, which may hardly be otherwise perceptible to the individual, may make a great change in the emotions. The reverse is also true. Emotional states cause a great change in the functions of the bodily organs, so great at times as to incapacitate them, or, in relation to the heart, to cause instant death. Serious bodily disturbances may or do occur in all emotional experiences. Bright's disease, heart disease, jaundice, dyspepsia, diarrhea, and other well-known changes in the respiration, involuntary muscles, and secretions, as well as in the voluntary muscles, are sequelae of different emotions. The emotions are evidently correlated with serious nutritional disturbances, especially of the viscera, brought about without doubt by changes in the vasomotor nerves, and hence in the blood supply. The health of the brain has been our chief concern previous to this. We must now also consider the health of the alcoholic's whole body. No one can well doubt the deplorable condition of the alcoholic as far as his emotions are concerned. He is emotional enough, too emotional, but the emotions are of a very low order. Everyone is familiar with the absurdly emotional condition of the man who is intoxicated. Perhaps for the first time, he either wishes to shake hands or to fight. The sentiments are neither worse nor better, but are not controlled. They are let loose and accentuated, and are revealed in their naked truth. To some extent, the same is true with the chronic alcoholic. His emotions are uncontrolled. Footnote. Besides there being an infinite variety of emotions, and an equally great variety of the same emotion, as far as its quality is concerned, we notice also a variety in quantity and method of approach. Thus, emotions may be strong or weak, in many degrees in between. They may come suddenly before we know it, or they may be gradual in appearance so that we can easily recognize their approach. Again, they may be intermittently strong and weak, or approaching suddenly for a time. Then gradually, the terms sudden and strong, and the terms gradual and weak, being at times more or less synonymous. Although the gradually approaching emotion may attain great strength, the emotions which appear gradually are more or less under control, but an emotion wholly under control ceases to be an emotion. 
one characteristic of the motion being its impulsive nature. Nevertheless, there is a slight measure of control in the less violent emotions, which is quite easily recognized. End footnote. But they are also deteriorated by continued indulgence, so that only the lowest ones survive. There is commonly a feeling of depression with vague and gloomy feelings, and a continual apprehension of misfortune which is impeding. Footnote. The word feeling is very ambiguous and may be the general term for all affective states. It may be the place here to make a distinction, for at least to call attention to distinctions which are made between different classes of feelings with which we have to deal. An example given, emotion, sentiment, and mood. In a general way, the sentiments are distinguished from emotions by having less response from the bodily organs and by being connected with ideals. The mood is a persistent emotional state with less reference to any particular object, but with the same particular feeling toward all objects. End footnote. His grief may easily become despair, and his lack of hope lead to permanent melancholy. To overcome this, he indulges more freely in the beverages which have provoked it, and these prove temporarily remedial, but only engender further depression. Coupled with this, a morbid irritability of temper is a marked feature. He is peevish and exaggerates his cares and his sufferings. His rage and anger may be persistent and mischievous, or remittent and impotent. In women of weaker mind, the character changes. They become sullen, taciturn sometimes. Very often, on the other hand, they have expansive and even compromising ideas. Occasionally, these two relations alienate. In Huss's well-known experiments, the dogs, to which he gave large doses of alcohol, became very irritable and were easily aroused by other dogs. In Hodge's experiments, where small doses were given, this irritability was not noticed. The alcoholic, whether a victim of large or small doses, is similarly affected in this respect. He is touchy and explosive when crossed in the smallest way. He is exacting, petulant, and hypochondrical. This disagreeable state he shows unmistakably, and that without sufficient cause. The victim of his anger may be the first person or object available, regardless of circumstances. Equally unreasonable is his suspicion. This suspicion is characteristic of some forms of alcoholic insanity, but even in his pre-insane days he is extremely suspicious. A conversation which he cannot hear, or the expression on the face of another, is referred to himself. He is suspicious of others' motives and jealous of his wife, both without cause. Acts of kindness are misconstrued, and he may think that persons are taking advantage of his condition to rob or injure him, and he makes much ado about nothing. Distinct and uncontrollable suspicions are very frequently noticed. His faith in others may be shaken on account of a consciousness of duplicity in his own mind, but it seems rather to be from a lack of judgment and balance and a failure to perceive the correct relations of things. His selfishness is very noticeable. He is utterly heartless as a general thing, and anything approaching apparent altruism will probably have a selfish motive if examined carefully. His self-indulgence in the face of what he knows to be right and the appeals of friends and family would naturally cultivate this. He is an egoist of the utmost unpleasant, graceless type. He dwells upon his own excellencies and ability, as well as his worries and fears, and is ever encouraging his egotism by constant contemplation of his own exaggerated virtues. For others, he cares nothing. The cries of his wife and children, the claims and entreaties of his parents and friends he hears, but perfectly indifferent to them. The once loving and obedient son strikes and tries to kill his mother. The wife whom he cherished and regarded with the tenderest affection he now loathes and seeks to injure. He looks upon the world and every part of it as fulfilling its duty only when he is provided with alcohol or anything else which he wishes. He has lost all consideration for others and is no longer sympathetic or charitable. His egotism may show itself in another form. He may be very presumptuous and unduly confident of his ability. Frequently he wishes to assist others in any difficult enterprise, which they may be endeavoring to accomplish, evidently with the idea that he is far more able than they to bring about a successful culmination. 
This may even be ludicrous at times. Again, this egoism may be exhibited in the great amount of sympathy which he has for himself, and concerning which he talks considerably. He also demands sympathy and consideration from others, and feels injured if he does not receive it. In some experiments made by Partridge, there was a very noticeable change made in the character of the associations after alcohol was administered. The egoistic associations were greatly increased. This was more conspicuous than any other change. There is a noted loss of all the higher and finer emotions. His emotional life is restricted in variety. Motives which might naturally excite the higher emotions are unable to impress the alcoholic, or if they do, it is in a way not expected. The principles of self-abnegation, modesty, love, patience, fortitude, self-criticism, and self-control are lost, and correspondingly, self-sufficiency arises. This self-sufficiency, the feeling which causes the alcoholic to think that he is extremely clever and acute, but his neighbors who see things in their proper relations do not share his opinions. Discomfort, pain, sorrow, anxiety, and fear are deadened and benumbed by every fresh indulgence, and his condition becomes chronically worse. In women there is a diminution or total loss of shame, and in both sexes there is a lack of pride and personal appearance and cleanliness. In Hodge's experiments with kittens, he found that the care of the body soon disappeared. Along with this, all the instincts characteristic of healthy kittens, care of coat, cleanliness, etc., were almost wholly annulled. The alcoholic has lost all taste for work of all kinds, and those more elevating emotions which are occasionally felt even by the least cultivated minds have entirely deserted his soul. In a word, he shows an utter lack of the higher emotions, those which are the signs by which we distinguish the true man. He is a stranger to true moral or religious emotions, although he may have periodic spasms of remorse when he cannot get anything more to drink or is too ill to take any more. He has no sense of the beautiful, and intellectual emotions are very infrequent. All altruistic emotions are gone, and his condition is well summed up in what we have said before, that he is the lowest kind of an egoist. There may be in him sudden and persistent perversions of the affections, where love is quickly transformed into hate, and frequently the general emotional content may be altered without any apparent cause. The subject may also alternate between extremes of love and hate. The emotional vagaries of the drunkard take their color according to his inheritance and daily habit. He is usually variable in his views and feelings. One hour easily pleased, happy, and facile, the next discontented, cureless, despondent, or obstinate. Frequently he develops a frothy sentimentalism with a fondness for dreamy self-feeling and emotional expression, which relates chiefly to affairs of love or religion. Sometimes a settled gloom sits on the man that may be madness, or a morbid hilarity in which he dwells as in a happy world of his own apart from all misfortune. In some cases the emotional condition sways between the two extremes. The swing of the pendulum spreads over months or years. A kind of folly circulary, or the emotional coloring may be of a lighter tinge, so that the moderate man becomes a silly optimist, or dons the darkened spectacles and is unable to see the good that is, much less the good that will be. Perhaps he could do no better than to take one state, which we have not yet discussed, and ask why this one should be excessive, or why it should remain at all. Let us take a very characteristic one, viz. fear. We hope by this examination, the one emotion, to show all the principles of emotional degeneration, and although we use fear as an example, what we say concerning it should be equally applicable to all those emotional states which still remain with the alcoholic. We have one difficulty in dealing with the emotions which we do not find to so great an extent when we consider the other mental faculties. The emotions differ so with different individuals, and differ so much in the same individual that we cannot speak of one emotion, example given, fear as a constant quantity. While all emotions of fear possess the distinctive factor which enables us to class them as fear, yet we cannot say that any one fear is identical either in quantity or quality with other fears which we have experienced. Far less can we say that our fear is like that 
of any ones else. First, let us say that in cases of simple intoxication, or even when an alcoholic is intoxicated, there appears to be an almost total lack of fear. The coward appears bold and aggressive. We hardly know him. The reason for this is that alcohol, as a paralyzer, does not make a man any more courageous, but deadens fear, if we can make that distinction. His judgment is so impaired that he does not realize the true situation, but rushes in where angels fear to tread. Further, the alcohol, for the time being, causes an increase in the circulation, so as to restore temporarily the normal mental condition, or at least to counteract the baneful influence of a decreased amount of blood to the centers of the brain. If it is possible to frighten a person when drunk, the fear has the effect of sobering him, so that if the fright is sufficiently great, the man is immediately sobered. The task, however, is to frighten a drunken man. Fear is useful for the cure of some other ills, chiefly of a nervous character. We all know what a panacea it is when one is afflicted with nervous contractions called hiccoughs. While fear is comparatively absent and impossible in simple intoxications, we find it the chief mental characteristic of delirium tremens and prominent in other alcoholic insanities. This excessive fear is occasioned by visual and auditory hallucinations and illusions brought about by the overwrought nervous condition. Footnote. Notice the following from K. Heilbronner, lecture delivered before the Medical Society of Hale, Germany, January 1901. There is generally a close connection between misuse of alcohol and the appearance of the emotion of fear. It seldom fails to be the initial appearance of those cases of delirium tremens, which later show the typical humorous disposition. Most alcoholic psychosis subsides without the excessive fear characteristics. End footnote. The fears of the alcoholic are of a different character from those of the person in delirium. With the alcoholic is largely a matter of mood. It is a chronic condition, only awaiting an occasion to be manifested. It is, however, hardly as prominent a symptom as irritability. There is fear of friends and enemies alike. There is no courage to undertake any business enterprise, and moral courage is an unknown factor. A certain amount of fear is as necessary as courage in every normal person. Why is the fear excessive and the courage lacking in the alcoholic? A rule to which we find no exceptions. For explanation, we fall back first upon our old rule of degeneration spoken of above. The latest received, most complex, and least stable acquisitions are first to go, while those acquisitions early developed and simple are the last to suffer from degeneration. Our religious sentiments and emotions, as well as those of ascetics and the intellect, are of late development. As they are of exceedingly complex nature, they soon disappear. The whole decline is from the higher to the lower. Those which deteriorate are recognized as the higher feelings. In the last chapter we found that the alcoholic did not have many ideas, and without ideals we cannot have these higher emotional states. There may seem to be an exception to our rule among these three sets of higher emotions. We would place the religious emotions the highest of these groups, but these may seem to outlast the others. In our religion there is a selfish factor, viz. that of salvation, and this may abide. But as far as true religious emotions, and certainly as far as moral emotions are concerned, they are among the first to disappear. Ribo gives the following order of emotional decline. 1. Disinterested emotions, aesthetic and higher forms of the intellectual. 2. Altruistic, social and moral. 3. Ego-altruistic, sexual love and religion. 4. Purely egoistic, anger, fear, nutrition. It all depends on what we mean by religion, whether we can agree with this classification. If we are able to understand by the religious emotions thus wrought up by frothy, sentimental platitudes with great pity for the alcoholic as a basis, then we agree. Perhaps it should even be placed in the last class. If we mean those emotions which accompany exalted and truly religious experiences, then we would place the religious emotions in the first class. The best solution of the difficulty would be to divide the religious emotions into two classes, 
those of the higher, exalted, and disinterested character, and those which have connected with them the selfish factor. We can then place the first division in the first class, and the second in the third class, and agree thoroughly with the classification as here given. This brings us right to the heart of the matter. Notice the emotions which we have enumerated as characteristic of the alcoholic, and we find them without exception of an egotistic character. Not only are those very highest emotions all gone, but the altruistic emotions, although attacked later, follow in the same way. The love of wife and children, the gratitude to father and mother, the duties as citizen, or the loyalty to friends are all forgotten. There is nothing considered but self, and that in the lowest and most selfish way. These emotions have disappeared in the inverse order of their acquisition by the individual. There is a broader principle to consider, and one that is important in this question of degeneration, and that is the order of acquiring the emotions by the race. This is where the evolutionary psychology may be of value to us. We have the following order in the general classification of feeling. 1. Feelings which primarily affect the conservation of the organism. 2. Feelings which primarily affect the perpetuation of the race. 3. Feelings which primarily affect the common welfare. 4. Feelings which primarily affect the welfare of others. 5. Feelings which are neither conservative nor destructive. 6. Feelings corresponding with relations between interactions. If we follow this order for the evolution of the race, we find correspondence between individual and race development, and the general agreement of the order of degeneration with the inverse order of development. We can see what is proven here, and what the theory of evolution has contended for, viz. the primacy of the egotistic emotions, for these are absolutely necessary for the survival of the individual. While we have called these egotistic emotions, many of them show themselves before a child has any idea of self such as fear and anger, but they are all connected with selfish manifestations, and as such they appear first and last longest. This, then, is the first reason to give why fear persists when other emotions disappear. We now pass on to look for further cause. The second reason we will state in the following way before explaining further. The lack of ability of the nerve cells to obtain proper nourishment causes a general lowering of nervous energy which in turn causes a mood, of which these emotions are the legitimate fruit. Perhaps here we could use anger to better advantage as an illustration, or better, the two, fear and anger, can be taken along together. It is evident that our emotional life is very much influenced by our bodily constitution. A healthy, strong, well-developed man, all of whose bodily organs perform their functions rightly, must differ widely from a delicate, weak, deformed man with a defective organism. Heart, lungs, gall, liver, circulation of the blood and respiration, even the conformation of the muscle and bones are of influence. So are sex and age, geographical, terrestrial, and cosmic influences. It is evident from this quotation that we should not only consider the cells of the brain, but the whole bodily organism as having influence. If the organs of the body are in bad condition, we must expect that the fact will be shown through the emotions. With the alcoholic, we know that such is the case, for there is perhaps not one organ in the body in a normal and healthy condition. In a normal person, our old example of fatigue, which is temporary in its effects, shows similar phenomena. We quote the following. The essential characteristic of a fatigued nerve is its increased irritability. It reacts to less than the normal stimulus, and hence more or less spasmodically. For example, in a state of fatigue, one is more likely to start at small noises. Furthermore, one's reaction is likely to be ill-directed, uncertain, prolonged. Let the same cause produce its natural effect in the workings of the intellect, the feelings, and the will, and we shall have, among other things, an important group of morbid states. The following may be enumerated as examples. Worry, despondency, bad temper, emotionalism of various kinds, oversensitiveness, lack of decision in small matters, morbid introspection. Among all the causes which produce anger, illness, and pain, 
stand out predominantly. And further, there has been noticed an agreement in the degree of pain and anger. Many children have been punished for a display of anger when they should have had medicine instead, or a rest, for irritability is often totally result of a physical state, and probably very seldom separated from physical causes. If we look at the phenomena of fatigue under the most favorable circumstances, we find the same result. It matters not how pleasurable a stimulus may be. If we continue it long enough, it becomes painful through fatigue and causes irritability or anger. Huss, in his experiments with dogs, which had received alcohol, already referred to, found them exceedingly irritable, while Hodge, in his experiments, found as a mark which distinguished the alcoholic dogs from others of the same litter, which were non-alcoholic, their excessive fear. Footnote. C.F. Hodge, The Physiology of Alcohol, Popular Science Monthly, Volume 1, pages 805 and 807, says, It was not until alcohol had been given for nearly two months that it became quite noticeable that tipsy and bum alcoholics were a little quieter than the others. This became gradually more marked. By September they were rather often caught napping in the shade, while Topsy and Nig, normals, were playing actively. They had developed also a cringing, trembling timidity, for which nothing either in my treatment of them or in their relation to the other dogs could possibly account. Bum has shown several mild paroxysms of fear, with some evidence also of hallucinations. The tone of sadness, the same as noted in Magnin's dog, is characteristic for tipsy and bum. It can be lightened up at times so as hardly to be recognized, but still it is the prevailing tone. And footnote. The lack of nutriment thus affects animals in the same manner as men, as far as their moods are concerned. To show the gloomy, fearful moods of an alcoholic, the poetry of E.A. Poe is frequently alluded to for it is well known that he was an excessive drinker of alcoholic beverages. Footnote. W. L. Howard, the pervert, says, Science has changed many of the old views of the order of things in the last decade, but in nothing has she been so gracious as in taking the stigma away of drunkenness too long attached to that American genius, Poe. Born with intellectual powers beyond the ken of his contemporaries, he also tried to struggle through his physical life, heavily burdened by a physical form of epilepsy, over which he could not possibly have control, and which at intervals held him in its impulsive grasp. Literature always recognized Poe's genius. Science now recognizes his disease. End footnote. Other examples in literature might also be given. The relation between fatigue and lack of nourishment on one side and fear on the other was noticed in the infant daughter of the writer, when she was not older than three weeks. When she was just awakened from sleep, had been recently fed and received her bath, she allowed the nurse to handle her without any apparent fear of falling. But when the bath was taken under similar conditions, when she was tired, sleepy, and hungry, it was impossible to move or turn her without the little hands flying out in an apparent movement to avert a fall. If one wishes any further evidence concerning the relation between nutrition and the emotions, especially the lack of nutrition and the lower emotions, he has only to read himself and notice the daily rise and fall of strength and the concomitant emotions. In the morning, a general good nature and exuberance of spirits exists, gradually diminishing until evening comes with irritability and gloom, which cannot be dispelled until after the night's rest and reoccupation. A man's temper varies with his health. In addition to saying, laugh and grow fat, we should say grow fat and laugh. Mood depends on the nervous system. We trust that we have said enough to make plain that we have stated as the second answer to the inquiry. Why does the alcoholic have the aforesaid emotional states? We will now state and endeavor to elucidate a third answer, viz. the memory of the alcoholic declined so that only the states of his early life are remembered. The emotional states have to share the fate of all other mental factors, and so his emotions come to be those of boyhood. Childhood emotions coincide very closely with those of the alcoholic. And as the memory of the feelings is not lost so quickly as that of events, he is proportionally more emotional. 
Up to the age of puberty a child is selfish, and altruistic feelings do not arise to any great extent until there begin the physical and mental changes of that time. In cases of arrested development in children, or those who are degenerates, they are lacking the social, moral, and higher feelings, but they have the lower feelings abnormally developed. Before puberty, a boy is a most complete egotist, and some have thought that but for the adolescence change, he would always remain so, with the disadvantage of a continued deterioration. It is stated that eunuchs are cowardly, envious, untruthful, deceitful, and devoid of all social feelings. If this is so, and the alcoholic is but a boy in emotion, except that he has not the advantage of the boy's physique, we would expect him to have all the egotistic feelings of a boy, but in the worst form, not only in the inferior quality, but in the disproportionate quantity, the alcoholic is excessively emotional. The memory is responsible for this, because the emotions are less easily forgotten than other experiences. Footnote. J. Ross on Memory, Brain, Volume 14, page 47, says that although the emotional experiences may be isolated and devoid of associations, they are remembered easier than some events are often repeated. End footnote. Some personal experiences of the writer are convincing to him, at least, and to show how tenacious the emotions are, compared with other mental states. They will be briefly related. The earliest memories of my life are memories of feeling. For example, they are all of an effective character. The events connected with them all took place when I was four years of age. I remember nothing earlier, and nothing more until about two years later. The events themselves I have no remembrance of but only certain emotional states connected with them. I was living in the city of Halifax, Nova Scotia. At the time of the occurrence of the first three of these four, these three are best remembered. First case. One afternoon I was taken out for a walk in the public gardens by my nurse. I saw my uncle some distance away and wished to go to him. This the nurse agreed to, and I started. Before I could get to him, my uncle moved away, and the nurse had also moved, and I was lost. My weeping attracted the attention of two little girls who took me to their home, reported me to the police, and at nine o'clock in the evening, my uncle came and took me home. I remember nothing of the circumstances, not the sorrow of being alone or lost, nothing of the little girls in the strange home, nor of my homecoming. But what stands out distinctly and indubitably in my memory is the feeling of satisfaction when nestling down in my uncle's arms when he came to take me home. I try to analyze the feeling, and it resolves itself into one of warmth after being chilly, although this could not be, for it was summer, and the flowers were blooming in the gardens. Second case. After watching my father shaving one morning, I tried to follow his example. I got his razor and went out on the front stoop to make my first shave. The circumstances I do not remember, either the stoop, the razor, or the cut, of which I still carry the scar but the feeling of pride that I was able to have the razor and shave is still quite easily recalled. Third case, one day when my mother was entertaining visitors, I went to my father's desk in an adjoining room, grasped a piece of paper, which, as it happened, was a note of considerable value, and returning to where my mother was, placed it on the fire in the grate. So the circumstances again have faded away. I have no remembrance of the visitors, the room, the grate, the paper, or the punishment which came later, but I do distinctly remember the feeling of pride connected with placing the paper on the fire before other people. Fourth case. This case I am not so sure as of the others. It seems like memory to me, but not so clear and distinct. The circumstances happened in a hotel in Amherst, Nova Scotia. I ventured down into the smoking room one day where I was given a piece of tobacco to chew by someone present. Again, the events have vanished from memory. No remembrance of the room, the recollection, the feeling of nausea as such, but the part which seemed to linger in memory is the feeling of inability to keep my eyes open when being carried to my room, and the great feeling of relief and satisfaction when they closed. This, of course, being a feeling connected with the nausea. Recognizing the danger of interpreting imagination as memory, in these early experiences, yet I can say that the first three of these are undoubtedly memory. The last one may be misinterpreted by imagination. We will notice that not only are 
all these memories of an affective character, but they are also egotistic. Not fear this time, nor anger, but two out of the four are pride, one joy, and the fourth the least clearly remembered, perhaps strictly not to be classed among the motions. If this experience is general, for example, if the emotions are better remembered than other states of childhood, this accounts at least in part for the phenomena of the disproportionate amount of emotion in the alcoholic experience. The memory of recent emotion fails, as does the memory of all other mental experiences. Footnote. H. Spencer, Principle of Psychology, Volume 1, pages 235 forward, says that feelings excited when the general circulation is very vigorous are more revivable than usual is a truth that may be variously exemplified. Revivability of feeling excited during a state of feebleness is comparatively small. The effect of depressed circulation, whether produced by disorder or by age, alike shows this. End footnote. The anger, fear, or joy of yesterday may have entirely passed from the mind, and the person whom the alcoholic considered his worst enemy yesterday may be his best friend today. Or, on the other hand, some isolated impressions of the experience may last, just sufficient to cause an unreasonable, persistent ill-feeling. The latter is not so common, for the alcoholic has not strength of purpose sufficient to carry out even an expression of ill-will against another. In the emotions, as with all mental states, the blood supply has a great influence. Brain, heart, and arm pulsations are immediately changed by the slightest emotion and the blood supply normal in quantity and quality, with ample provision for a ready transference from one part of the body to another, as well as from one part of the brain to another, is an admitted necessity for normal emotions. The career of an emotion seems to be limited physically, for if the intensity is weak, either through voluntary control or for other reasons, the extensity is greater. But if the emotions are very intense, they are less extensive. The statement has been made, that anemia with poor nourishment is the cause of morbid emotions. The general lack of nutrition has been spoken of, but we must remember that the quantity as well as the quality of blood is important. By referring to this first chapter, we will see that in the alcoholic, neither quantity nor quality is equal to the standard. If the blood vessels and nerves are out of order, it is impossible that the organic rebound, so necessary in emotional states, should take place. And generally we find that the emotions which have anemia as a concomitant are the ones which remain in the alcoholic. Some might think that there is one great exception, that of anger, but we rarely, if ever, see the hyperanemic form of anger in the alcoholic, except when the circulation is greatly increased by an excessive amount of alcohol. The anger characteristic of the alcoholic is rather the sullen, morose irritation which is present in connection with the anemia. We would not say that emotions requiring hyperanemia are possible, but at least they are not frequent. Emotions can be increased or decreased in intensity by altering either the quantity or quality of the blood. Anger and fear, as well as fatigue, are accompanied by a change in the composition of the blood. Would it be carrying the smile too far to surmise that the change wrought by alcohol may be analogous to that concomitant with anger and fear and thus these two emotions are assisted. Of the blood supply of the alcoholic we know one thing, and that is that the arteries are so closed by pathological growth as to be unable to deliver the normal supply of blood. This corresponds in effect to contraction of the arteries by the vasoconstrictor nerves. We know further that, in general, fear and sadness are accompanied by vasomotor constriction, while joy in one form of anger are accompanied by dilation. It is not hard, then, to draw the conclusion that the quantity of the blood has its effect upon the emotions in determining which one shall survive. More than any other mental state, the emotions use the whole brain and nervous system. Footnote. In regard to the physical basis of the emotions in the brain, in common with the intellect and will, we do not believe that any particular portion of the brain is a special seat of the emotions but rather think that the centers in use for other functions have an emotional function also. End footnote. At first the emotion is only concerned with one set of nerve cells or centers, 
but the excitement attending spreads to those other centers nearest connected with the first set, and latter over the whole system. In looking for a physical basis, we cannot give it a narrow localization, but rather we would say that the emotion depends on the quantity and quality of the stimulation of the different nerve centers all over the body, together with the mood of the person at the time of the excitation. We see then that both the brain and the various organs of the body have an influence, for while the brain may incite and to a certain degree control the emotions, it is also true that if the organs are in such a condition that they cannot conform to the changes normally required by the emotion, the emotion is thereby hindered or inhibited. Now we come to another question, which we will try to answer in the language of another. The question is this, even if the early emotions are the ones which remain, do we not find among early emotions those of joy as well as sadness? Do we not find emotions of brightness as well as gloom? Why are these not represented in our list? Mr. Spencer assists us here. Pains are more intense than pleasures. Footnote. In common with all feelings, the emotions have a special subjective reference and are generally pleasurable or painful and are so classed. Although the hedonic element is a mixed and sometimes contradictory one, as when, for instance, the pleasure of being angry is spoken of, or the joy of grief, notwithstanding this hedonic element in the emotions, we find that pain or pleasure of a special sort and emotions are mutually exclusive, that we cannot have one when we are experiencing the other. End footnote. The idea of pain follows its antecedent into consciousness more readily than the idea of pleasure. There is a small number of painful feelings which are strong, a large number of pleasurable feelings that are less strong, and a much larger number of feelings which are but slightly pleasurable. When the nervous pressure is high, the current is forced into less permeable lines, for example, into the slightly pleasurable feelings. But as it gets weaker, it goes only into the most intense lines, and when at its lowest, the content comes to be composed mainly of the aggregate of faintly aroused, painful feelings, so producing gloom and groundless fear and despair. The energy is low and goes into the most permeable path. Joyous emotions are thereby eliminated, as we truly find them to be in the alcoholic. Closely connected with this are other modifications of organs, which may not be in harmony with the expressions of the emotions, and prevent the bodily symptoms which accompany and augment the primary emotional feelings, as the blood both in quantity and quality fails to fulfill the conditions of the emotions which are lacking and conforms to the conditions of the remaining emotions, so the change wrought in the bodily organs may be antagonistic to the joyous and other absent emotions and favorable to the gloomy and fearful emotions which remain. For if the bodily organs are set in the opposite way to the customary effect of an emotion, that will in a large measure prevent the appearance of that emotion. The opposite effect should also be noticed. Not only does alcoholism cause a change in the emotions, but changes in the emotions may cause a drinking bout. Men drink on account of their depression and grief, or the exaltation and joy. The emotions more than any other faculty seems to contribute to causes or occasions of drinking. It is the impulsive or emotional men in whom we expect to find the alcoholic or dipsomaniac, and in this we are not often disappointed. Footnote. Notice the following from P.C. Remondandino. A Study of the Causes and Nature of Dipsomania, Quarterly Journal of Inebriety, Volume 23, page 136. It is curious to note the retroactive effects of music upon the emotions and the impulses as exemplified among different temperaments. Pathetic music will drive some to drink, and I have seen cases wherein the immediate individual emotional environments became so accentuated by the effect of this form of music as to bring on a sudden suicidal determination, just as the Marseillaise spur all the latent belligerency of the French of the South into martial frenzy. As St. Augustine wisely observes, there are perils which we should not attempt to overcome, but wherein discretion is the better part of our valor, and where it is more prudent to flee. An emotional nature, which knows by experience that its poise cannot be disturbed without risks, should by all means avoid all causes of disturbance and not subject itself to any trials in which it will surely be vanquished, so that whatever the bard may say about the man who has no music in his soul, 
such dipsomaniacal natures had better avoid music that is not of the lightest order. End footnote. The genius or emotionally unbalanced suffer most in this particular, for alcohol provides the exhilarating effects which such natures demand, even if the effect is only temporary and administers to a more depressed condition later. We have given a description of the emotional states of the alcoholic, have endeavored to explain the cause for them. We have to look a little further at the relation of these emotional states to the other mental experiences. Perhaps sufficient has been said concerning the specific relations, but in general let us add that not only does general degeneration cause an emotional deterioration, but a derangement of the emotions is more wearing on the nervous system than perhaps any other mental disorder. So all the faculties suffer in a special degree if the emotions do. The emotions must depend upon all the other faculties. Memory will, imagination, intellection, and they will in turn depend upon the emotions. The ideas which produce the emotions are reciprocally acted upon and disturbed, so as to have the train of thought disarranged and disorganized. There is no cognition free from emotion, and no emotion free from cognition. Lotz says, The force of ideas, therefore, seems to me to rest on their concatenation with emotions, and if I spoke of their strength, I should use the word merely to express the fact that they are victorious over others, and the understanding that their victory occurs in this way, and no other. This refers to the promotion power of emotion on the thoughts. So the emotions, according to their strength, have either inhibiting or promoting effect upon the thoughts, and the effects on all the other mental states is far-reaching. We have tried to eliminate all discussions of theories in our treatment except insofar as they directly concern our subject. We inevitably come in contact with one discussion to which, while we have treated the emotions without direct allusion, we now devote a small amount of space on account of the light which our subject may throw upon it. The discussion is between persons advocating different theories of the emotions. The arguments are centered now, as for the past few years, in the arena in which are placed what might be called by way of distinction, the physiological and psychological theories. The former is young and strong. It appears in 1884, having been brought forth simultaneously independently by C. Lang and W. James. This theory in some form has been accepted by many psychologists, but the opposite theory is now gaining strength, for experimental evidence tends to confirm it. Footnote. In a recent lecture given at Yale University, Professor Sherrington of Liverpool stated that his experiments on animals confirmed the view of Professor Ladd rather than that of Professor James and Lang. End footnote. According to the theory of Professor James, the bodily changes followed directly the perception of the exciting fact, and what we call the emotion is solely the feeling originating in these organs. I now proceed to urge the vital point of my whole theory, which is this. If we fancy some strong emotion and then try to abstract from our consciousness of it all feeling of its bodily symptoms, we find we have nothing left behind. All psychologists will admit that the feeling from the different organs of the body are important factors in the emotion. That is not the dispute. The statement that the emotion consists of nothing, but this is the point where the disagreement arises. The opponents of this theory, chief among whom is Professor Ladd, would deny that because the organic feelings are inseparably connected with the emotion. They are the emotion. In a few words, we will endeavor to present Professor Ladd's theory. The occasion of the emotion may be a presentation, imagination, memory, or thought. Accompanying this is some form of feeling, which for some reason connected with the peculiar disposition of the individual, causes a fixation of the attention, and by the addition of the associated trains of mental images, the effective accompaniment is intensified. The physiological concomitant of this factor is a nerve storm in some limited portion of the brain, which quickly spreads to other centers, gathering intensity both physiologically and psychologically. In addition to the excitement of the brain itself, there is an unorganized surplus which overflows and sweeps down the different paths of exit upon the lower centers and upon the different systems of muscles upon the vascular and secretive and respiratory systems. 
and then from the peripheral parts return currents sweep backward further to disturb the centers that lie within the brain when the bodily organs react with special and a confused mass of sensations a mixed feeling ensues entailing the bodily organs and augmenting and heightening the original centrally initiated feelings the emotion comes to be an extremely mixed and complicated state of consciousness and may for the time being occupy the whole field this bodily resonance or somatic reaction is recognized as an important factor in the emotion but only a factor and not the total content of feeling for the feelings which are essentially initiated are also recognized the discussion concerning these theories has been long and the arguments for and against manifold, but we cannot state them here, only in so far as our subject calls them forth. The contribution which alcoholism makes to the subject is twofold. In the first place, it does not seem that the expenditure of energy, which causes the great cerebral deterioration in alcoholism, is shown by peripheral reflexes and reactions. But to account for this, we must conclude that there is energy disseminated in the brain itself, apart from that shown by the effect of the stimulation of the motor nerves. If this is so, it would pave the way for the view of centrally initiated feelings, as well as those feelings for which the periphery is responsible. The method of degeneration gives the other suggestion. Why should one set of emotions decline and not all? It cannot be that the peripheral organs are injured or the peripheral nerves deranged. For if this were so, the emotions as a whole would deteriorate according to both theories, which is not the case. The reason is that the higher centers in the brain are injured. These centers, which when excited, give rise to the feelings of the higher emotions as such. Having degenerated, they cannot entertain the peculiar modifications which are the basis of the emotions which depend on these centers. As will be readily seen, both of these suggestions favor the theory as set forth by Professor Ladd. The emotional degeneration brought about by the use of alcohol corresponds to the decline of the other mental states. The general bodily health influences the emotions more than the other faculties. By encouraging certain moods in the alcoholic, the higher altruistic emotions disappear and the strength of the whole nature goes into the lower selfish ones. In examining fear as an example, we found the law which applied to the degeneration as a whole. The decline of the emotions proves to be in inverse order to the acquisition by the race. The early memories are usually emotional ones, but the joyous emotions of youth do not appear with the sad ones. The emotional peculiarities of the individual have a great influence upon the question of continued and uncontrolled drinking. The quantity and quality of the blood, the state of the bodily organs, and other somatic factors have a great effect on the emotions of the alcoholic. The study of alcoholism contributes to the discussion of the theories of the emotions favoring that of centrally initiated feelings. End of chapter 6